0: Welcome, welcome again to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast, the podcast where you go to listen to orthopedic topics and become well versed on it. And I am, uh, you know, one of the hosts, Dr. Cole, and I'm, uh, and I'm accompanied here by my co-host, A.K.A. Robin, A.K.A. Go ahead and <laughs> introduce yourself. I want y'all to
1: notice that he 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 kind of stumbled on his name. Like without me, this kid is really lost, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> like uh, th- I'm I'm Dr. Jay Fitz. So glad to have you guys back for those who are new. Oh, uh, excuse me, for those who've been here before and those who are new, hey, come on enjoy the show.
0: See that that right there, that's why I'm here, everybody. So I you know <laughs> makes your things go. Makes your things go in track and makes your things go right. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, Dr. Fitz. what what do you you know, I know we just recently heard about this whole step one being uh you know it's gonna be pass fail thing what What do you think you think that's gonna help out or you think it's gonna help uh level the playing field or you think it's just gonna make step two more important you know because we're gonna have you know applicants that come and soon they're gonna be your interns and you're a four and a five so what do you think about this
1: man i have no idea right I'm, it, like we got to have something you know um objective to to go by because i mean there's so many great candidates out there and you know the the step one for so long i think it's just been something programs could use to just weed out a lot of people because i mean if you got all these hundreds and hundreds of applicants i mean we need something to at least cut this in half or maybe cut it into a third and that was what they used now with that going to pass fail it makes you wonder is step two going to be the next one that everybody do that to do that for or or not but i mean would that make sense if they were to make step one, pass, fail, why would you all of a sudden just switch to step two and make that the one that you got to excel on? So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting thing. I think it's really early to tell. I don't think that really starts until probably, what, another year or so. So right. it's not this entering class. I think it might be the next entering class where that goes into play. But yeah. so I don't know, man. I, we'll,
0: I have no we'll idea. See. We'll see. You know, we'll see. Uh, uh, you know, I'm interested to see If like six seven years down the line, if that uh, if that correlates with any type of board scores, you know, when you when you finish residency, if this step one being pass fail has any type of correlation with the board scores uh, pass rate, you know, from the chiefs or whatever, Mm -hmm. in five six years, it may be interesting. You know, somebody listening to this may may write it up now. You know, who knows? Well, I mean,
1: you know, there's like data out there that shows that step one really doesn't uh, correlates with you know, being a better resident per se. Yeah, and, I agree. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to just kill the the whatever your board exam is either. So um, I don't know. There's, that's that's always been the, the big issue with it. But anyway, I don't know. We can probably talk about the whole politics of, you know, that, that part of medicine, if we want, we probably can do a whole show about it, I bet. But anyway, we're moving on. We have a, a different talk on guys. we got something for you on the pediatric side of things and it's pretty high yield. Uh, we do it quite, we deal with it quite a bit from all over the Midwest at my program. Uh, we're talking about cerebral palsy, which is, I mean, we see it all the time and uh, very high yield on the pediatric side of things. And like I say, uh, should be a good one. We have Dr. Monica Pajares Lozano uh, coming in, who's going to do the talk for us. She did completed her residency at the Albert Einstein Medical Center, and she completed her fellowship in pediatrics at the Afford Eye DuPont Institute. Uh, and she came in and gave an amazing talk. We went over. A lot of the high yield things that you see uh, coming up in the in the in the questions when you do these things in the in the Q bank. So, I hope you guys tune in and enjoy this and really take something from it. I'm pro- actually probably about to listen to it again. It was so good. And uh, so, yeah, enjoy.
0: Enjoy. You are now listening to Nailed It, the Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, featuring Doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Aris. welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are so excited to have you on and talk about some pediatrics today. Um, and I know there's a lot going on in your city right now. So we're, we're so thankful that you made the time out to come and speak with us. So how are you doing? And welcome to the show.
2: I am doing great. Thank you guys for having me. I think this is an excellent uh, opportunity to spend some time with you guys, considering I'm on, on lockdown and, uh, Luckily, here in Miami, uh, <laughs> hurricane winds are allowing us to have this conversation. So thankful for uh, for the opportunity and for being here and sharing a little bit of what I've been experiencing in uh, in uh, pediatric orthopedics in this uh, in these times.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, that's great. I'm, I can't, I'm looking for, actually looking forward to my pediatric rotation. We, and I know every place is different, but we don't do peas until our second year. So I have it coming up in the next couple of months. So I'm hoping this talk gives me a good little, at least solid basis of, um, solid basis of knowledge. And, and of course, we're all glad that you're all safe there in Miami and that you're doing okay.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having me
0: all right perfect so we kind of like to start off the podcast just asking a couple questions getting to know you um just a little bit better you know general questions and the first one is do you have a favorite case that is that's my question do you have a favorite case that you like to do
2: absolutely there there's a few favorite cases i must say nothing like a nice little type 3 supercondylar, close mm-hmm. reduction and pinning but i must say that i truly enjoy going along the topics of today a good SEMOS or single event multi-level surgery with, uh, pelvic reconstruction and femoral video roles. That's, that's a a very nice long case.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think I've heard some residents say that they kind of like that as well during my, my little time at the, uh, at the children's hospital. also, um, let's see, since this is going in my, going on in Miami right now, right now there's for, Those who don't know, there's a hurricane that's kind of going along the coast of the United States right now. And uh, they were worried at the time about Florida being involved as well. Um, And we, in our, in one sense, we kind of lucked up because we have Dr. Piaris off right now so that she could do the talk. So it worked out in one (laughs) way for us. But um, so what how, how is it just staying in Miami as a whole and also just having to deal with hurricanes and things like that? I'm from the South, and that's, that's like the one type of storm we really just don't have to deal with a whole lot.
2: Well, I can tell you that there's a few things, I guess, depending on where you live in the U.S. and even in the world, there's certain natural disasters that you're prone to. And, uh, I mean, I lived in Miami uh, for about five years uh, during my college time. And, and I uh, took a little break and went to train in the Northeast with all the cold. And, and mm-hmm. I did have even a hurricane with Sandy up there. But um, I can tell you that we get used to it in the sense that since and uh, Android 92, um, South Florida has become uh, definitely more uh, involved and prepared. Um, so even though we have the ability to, uh, to know that it's coming, which I think it's definitely a, a tremendous advantage, uh, the infrastructure is built now to, to sustain some of these very nasty storms, uh, the preparation and the ability to prepare for it, um, are helpful. So that gives us a sense of, uh, security, the, you know, construction has been, uh, and codes have been better since, since then. So that it's helpful, you know. You know, I I don't know the people in California might think, you know, you know when the when the the
0: The earthquakes
2: coming, you know, Um, that would definitely scare me more. Um, But I think at this time we've gotten a a pretty good grasp of how to prepare and uh, prepare for the worst, um, so that uh, so that we're ready for whatever for whatever comes. So I think we're lucky in that sense. Um, Unfortunately, I couldn't say the same thing for our our friends in the Bahamas, so I'm sure in the coming days and weeks, uh, we will definitely put up some efforts here to to go ahead and help them out.
1: Yeah, hopefully we will, hope so. I know things are a little weird with our government right now, but hopefully that gets done. Uh, on the side question, and I just thought of this, I know, so with earthquakes, that's pretty much orthopedic land, like after an earthquake, there there tends to be a lot of orthopedic injuries that needs to be uh, needs to be fixed or or attended to. It, do you see any kind of increase in orthopedic injuries with uh, hurricanes?
2: Well, I mean, most it it depends. So it depends on where you are as well. There's a lot of flooding. There's a lot of people that might be um, stocking places. In all honesty, we do have a basic instinct. We were MDS before we were orthopedists, and and our sense of of doing what we do and and doing uh, no harm and doing well for others. That's what's gonna take in in the beginning. Um, yes, can you find orthopedic injuries? Definitely, there's structure loss. There's people that can get trapped. Um, not as much, I would say, probably for for an earthquake, uh, but nonetheless, our our efforts and our hands can can be used in in many different ways.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that's 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 so true. Uh, I think we can go ahead and transition and start to get into the topic of the day or the case of the day, where well, we're all here for what the listeners are sitting on the edge of their seats for, um, and that's to talk a little bit about our P's case today. And so we'll kind of typically start off with a little case presentation and then go and dive into a little bit deeper of you know things that we look for on exams, classifications, how to treat, et cetera. Uh, Today's topic is a little bit broad, but so let's just say we have this patient that comes in, her mom brings in her four-year-old kid, um, and just, she just states that she thinks that her patient, that her son or her daughter, let's say his son is just walking a little bit differently than all the other kids. And when you talk to her in her notes, she says that she has a history of a premature birth with a prolonged labor time. So where would we kind of go from here?
2: I that's an excellent and a very typical, um, pediatric orthopedic, uh, chief complaint, uh, especially in my practice where I'm, uh, I'm sort of focusing more on uh, special needs or some sort of complex um, patients. <clears throat> but nonetheless, uh, a, a typical uh, chief complaint for pediatric CPDs will be a gait abnormality, okay, uh, or, the, or some sort of developmental delay. Um, or basically, they're, they're walking funny. That's what they're saying. And and like you mentioned, they're not really keeping up or they walk different than maybe their other children or some other of the other similar age uh uh, kids in school. So how do we approach that? And I know basically we're trying to focus on material policy today, but uh, in general, I think what you mentioned is the importance of um, asking the right questions in terms of your history. So for instance, you want to make sure that you're asking, like you mentioned, developmental history, birth history. Uh, what was the perinatal? Were there any complications during the pregnancy? Um, does she have a a uh, history of other difficult or any other miscarriages. Um, once they were born, was, a, was there a struggle during the birthing? Was it a, a, a normal birth, a premature rupture of membranes? Were there a prolonged NICU stay? Was there intubation? Um, have they been in the last four years in any sort of therapies? Because um, that can help you sort of point to what, um, what, what we're trying to deal with um, here. Um, have they been evaluated by other physicians? Are you the first physician besides their pediatrician that is looking at them? Have they been seen by a neurologist? Have they been seen by genetics? And that can sort of help you guide um, the level of delay. Have they not met their milestones? For instance, you want to ask about uh, our, when did they start sitting? When did they start uh, cruising? When did they start walking independently? And you're trying to sort of find out what their sort of the uh, functions are. Are they speaking well? Do they have delays in other aspects? So you're trying to get a whole picture of the uh, of the patient itself, and that uh, can can sort of um, uh, also guide your examination. So again, um, it's it's uh, easy if you have a a nice systematic approach to all of this. And I find it useful in my practice to have sort of a questionnaire when they walk in, they get registered and you want to, uh, you want to start uh, sort of saving a little bit of time and having them fill out some of this, some of this information for you, and that can help you guide because you may have a very limited time. And this is in general for pediatrics, right? Your right. patient may not be super patient; they're not going to be willing to say to to sit there comfortably and and being very cooperative. So even during the time that you're trying to make all these very very important questions, they may be already antsy because they may have been already waiting for thirty minutes for an hour outside. And and they may be scared of you, right? Um, So having some of these things, I think, are very helpful in the pediatric population in general, Um, just to have the parents fill out all this information even before they get to see you. And then once you get the sort of briefly, skim it through before you go in to actually examine the patient. And your physical examination will also then begin even before the patient walks into the room. You're seeing them walking around uh, into the room. That may be the only time you're actually going to see them walk around Um, Uh because they may once they see you they may be completely shut down and not want to participate in anything else okay so the history again is important you want to find out what their what the the pertinent perinatal history how their growth and development has been any other physicians that are following any other medical treatments that they may have had um, and then you're trying to find out about what, what's their functionality, right? What are they able to do now? And what are they concerned about uh, in the future? Um, and then you can sort of work into to your more of, a, of your physical examination, okay? So, again, if, if the first thing you're able to do is just them you know, as they're watching in, walking into the room, maybe getting up from the chair, if they're even able to do that or not, or if they're walking in in a wheelchair. Um, so you want to do, um, you want to assess to see what your static physical examination versus a dynamic physical examination right so you're gonna try to do it again if you can systematically sort of from head to toe you look at their faces do they look like they have um any dysmorphic features do they look like the mom and dad if they're if they're present um are they are they able to be cooperative are they uh, trying to uh, behave or, or communicate with you as a typical three, four year old, whatever age group it is that you're, you're seeing. Um, you're going to be looking at them, you know, um, upper extremities. Are they moving both hands? Are they reaching out for this? Have, have little props here and there that can be helpful. For instance, I, in, my, I, in my ID, I always have a little light That makes a little sound, so it can be distracting or little stickers or something to see if they reach out. You ask them if they like to use one hand versus the other hand, and you can try to see if there's any preference of using one hand uh, versus the other. Um, You notice any abnormal movements, um, and we'll go into that a little bit more later. Um, Yeah. Um, you can check for range of motion, both upper and lower extremities; those will be important. And then more of a dynamic examination. If you can do a little observational gait analysis, and that's something that it's important for you to to catch. I says whenever you can, because they may not be uh, very willing. So you so, you sort of have to target the examination to what you can do. Um, and then again, you may not be the, getting the whole picture the first time around.
0: Right, um, so, and,
2: so- and, and that's okay. And that's okay.
0: Mm-hmm. And so you said when they when they first come in, you just first kind of observe if they walk and how their gait is before you even start talking to them. Uh, you look at their range of motion. You look to see which hand they prefer, um, and then you know you look at their alignment. So those are all kind of things that you do before you even like really start to examine examine the patient. Just kind of doing your verbal observation, not verbal, uh, your
2: uh,
0: your observation first, huh?
2: Absolutely, I think it's extremely important to 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 take advantage of every single moment of the interaction, whether you're actually with the patient in the examining room, on the examining room table, you have to take advantage of every single uh, moment because you may not have that much more. Um, with pediatrics, I think that's uh, that's sort of a, uh, it's very common to, to get very limited examinations because of that. So you have to be able to use what you get. So you have to have all your eyes and senses ready to go.
0: And so like, I guess a a little bit more question, because, you know, when you're reading on these things, you read up on things like spasticity and different things. So when you're doing, uh, when you're testing range of motion, what are some of the specific things that we're on the lookout for? Like, how do we know uh, this patient is like more spastic or, you know, than than the others? You know, what are like key things that we look out for?
2: So I know we're fast forwarding a little bit more towards just the particular physical examination, but... You would have to differentiate between a, a dynamic or a static contracture, and this is sort of what you're uh, gauging. Um, there are different types, and this is part of more of the classification, and we can go over that. I know we are sort of jumped up into the direct assessment of the patient,
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: but there's different ways um, in how to determine what kind of movement disorders they have. Um, and what is a true contracture or what's a true range of motion versus not. Um, and that's sort of part of like the length, or more of a static examination. So if you're looking at, for instance, the the type of movement, um, and you mentioned spasticity, we're talking more of a, basically like a physiologic classification for different movement disorders. So spasticity is the most common Um and basically, when you have increased muscle tone, um, but you will be able to relax some of this. And and this may be also part of of your interaction in general with the patient. If you um, if the patient is extremely nervous, um, this plasticity can actually act up a little bit more. You sort of have to make it into a more uh, a more calm um, situation for them, and and, and when you start arranging that initial um, the initial pa- uh, fast passive motion, maybe a little bit uh, uh, tighter. Um, we call that uh, we need to talk about Tardieu classification and things like that to 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 measure the uh, spasticity. So we will talk about an R one, which is sort of your initial. Um, range and then we talk about an R2 sort of like when they relax a little more and, and then I can maybe bring them uh, more and, and this is something that we use to to talk about muscle length and to talk about dynamic versus static contractures this is a little more complicated
0: and what's the name of that classification that you just Tardieu?
2: T-A-R-D-I-E-U. T-A-R-D-I-E-U
0: okay,
2: okay. We use two uh, different for specificity we use that and we also use Ashworth classification <clears throat> cool.
1: And also just on, you know, once you examine this patient, uh, you know, you kind of have the classifications in mind and different things. Uh, is there any advanced imaging or even x-rays that you're doing anything like that to kind of assist with the diagnosis as well?
2: Not necessary. So I can go back in terms of what, what is the repulsive? If this is already what you're thinking, right? You've, you sort of walked the, you know, the, you came in, you have a little bit of a brief history, you have seen the kid a little bit, you know, there's something definitely a little bit off. So then it's already clicking in your mind, right? So what what is cerebral palsy? Mm-hmm. And and basically this is this is a, a, a group of of disorders, right? It's a big range, right? It's a group of developmental uh, movement disorders that are basically um, non-progressive. So we talked about a static encephalopathy. Um, but this static encephalopathy can often be accompanied by secondary musculoskeletal problems so those problems can be progressive so the initial injury or the initial insult which we're thinking about in this case we're talking about prematurity Mm -hmm. um which is a very very high risk factor for cerebral palsy um but I can tell you in about 50%, we don't even have a cause. It may not even be premature. So we don't know exactly what it is that is causing uh, cerebral palsy. And it's not, it's not, there's no test to tell us, okay, this kid has, it's cerebral palsy positive or negative. There is no necessarily uh, imaging. I have seen imaging uh, or an MRI of the brain that can, uh, that is, you would look at that MRI and it's completely normal. And this kid is a fully involved, total killer dependent person. And I've seen MRIs where you would say like, well, this person is obviously severely affected and how can this person even be alive? And they're, you know, you know, they have a spastic diplegia, and they're college students, or they want to be physicians. Um, so you, there is no particular test to this day that can tell us, okay, this person has cerebral palsy. So cerebral palsy is a diagnosis. It's a clinical diagnosis that's accompanied, accompanied by your history, your physical examinations, your observational gain analysis, and, and all these other sort of uh, multidisciplinary approaches that you have towards this patient.
1: Okay. So, yeah, it's just, you have to kind of put it all together and have things, have, pretty much have this on your differential for sure. Absolutely. Um, on kind of the, the pathophysiology of what you were mentioning, uh, are you familiar with, and I know this kind of, it, it does kind of go into more uh, the neuro side of things, but are you familiar with any of the actual spinal tracts that, that are often damaged in these types of uh, situations or anything like that?
0: Taking it back to basic science.
2: Yeah, basic, so, so, so yeah, so in terms of the basic sciences, we do know that there are, these are insults uh, to the developing brain, the developing um, nervous system. Whether it happens in the Euro in Euro where it happens during the delivery, or after the first two years of life, or after an unfortunate event, out of a near drowning or something like that, we know there is this is an upper motor neuron uh, type of injury, basically the, um, that decreases your input in your uh, retinal reticulospinal and corticospinal tracts, and this is going to end up affecting your muscle control. So we talked uh, we talked basically about this sort of static encephalopathy or damage that happens in the central spine, uh, spinal uh, nervous system that affects portions of your muscular skeletal system down the line and it affects us during the growth. And basically this leads to the muscle imbalances with a mixture of sort of the weakness, the spasticity and other abnormal um, issues. So I like to to sort of break down the pathophysiology into, into two. So you have your primary abnormalities and then you have your Um, secondary abnormalities and and part of this um, primary abnormalities you're going to be seeing this the loss of inhibition of your lower moral neurons Um, and you're going to have some positive features in your upper moral neurons so you're going to have that spasticity hyperreflexia you're going to have some clonals and this and this co-contracture that makes it really hard for them to really coordinate their their motions. and this is very basically neural in, in function um, you're gonna have again abnormal muscle tone, deficient balance and coordination. You're gonna have uh, you're gonna have uh, residual primitive reflex patterns, uh, weakness, and you're gonna have loss of selective motor um, control. And then you're gonna have that is gonna lead to your secondary abnormalities, which is more of the musculoskeletal pathology that's gonna lead to sort of your muscle shortening, uh, different torsional abnormalities, joint instabilities, and and then. Farther
0: down the line, de- degenerative um, arthritis. Mm, right. Just so, just to quickly summarize—not quickly, but to summarize what we spoke about already. We kind of spoke about the physical exam, like how this is a clinical diagnosis, and we make this diagnosis once we see them. You know, we assess their gait. We see how their, or their physical exam looks. Their their muscle tone, their range of motion. Uh, we kind of spoke about um, now a little bit of the pathophysiology behind it, and how this is an injury to the um, the promoter neuron tracks and decrease the input, and this leads to increase, you know, abnormal muscle control and weakness. Um, so then, next is I know we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but what are the different ways like to classify this? Just some of like the high yield ones because I heard you saying diplegia a little bit earlier. And yes, what are the, what are what are some of the ways that we? So,
2: so we have physiological classification. We have an anatomic classification. So in terms of our physiologic classification, we try to. To sort of coordinate with um, what what they're what they're physiologically doing. So spasticity is the most common um, uh, uh, class, um, and it's uh, it's usually a increasing muscle tone and hyperreflexia, uh, when you have sort of a simultaneous uh, contraction of both your agonists and antagonists. So basically, pretend you're trying to extend your arm. You're going to reach out to grab that cookie. OK, and basically your triceps and your biceps are contracting at the same time. So it's extremely difficult to you to 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 voluntarily control that because you it, it's sort of like it's constantly on and you have, again, simultaneous contraction. So that kind of spasticity and you can you can um, it, it, you can control it in different ways, but that is really our most common type. Um, you can have acetoid, um, which uh, basically means you have basically a constant uh, succession of Sort of slow writhing or involuntary movements. Um, you can have an ataxic cerebral palsy, which uh, basically, if you have an unbalanced white base gait, you sort of think of this sort of a t- like a, a toddler that just started walking or or somebody that's inebriated. That's sort of a ataxic type of pattern. Um, and you can have a mixed type, okay? And usually you can have spasticity with acetoid features, um, which involve the whole body. And uh, the last uh, a class would be a hypotonic um and most kids actually may start hypotonic and then subsequently become uh, spastic or acetoid or have other different uh types so that that's sort of for your physiologic and i'll regroup number one is spastic um and then acetoid ataxic, mixed, or hypotonic and then we talked about uh, the anatomic classification and we um we like to um, mention those as quadriplegic meaning all four limbs are involved um diplegic or hemiplegic these days we're actually calling it more bilateral or unilateral meaning uh so for our previously known as hemiplegic or unilateral one side of the body is involved uh in in the majority and or in a diplegic or bilateral usually lower extremity is involved in the upper extre- extremities um, spared
0: yeah i know i saw a couple questions on the diplegic where it was mm-hmm. uh testing if you knew whether or not the, like there was that more leg involvement than there was upper body involvement or arm Absolutely. involvement I'm, I'm happy that you just said that and one of the other things that I, I see a lot um a lot of questions on is the the girls motor function Classification scale like yeah. gmf can you kind of just quickly like go over that and
2: absolutely so this is an excellent way that we can um we can all sort of communicate and if i say you know this is a three-year-old we are gmfcs level two we should all know exactly what i'm talking about okay so the gross motor function classification um this was described in the late 90s Uh, i think it's been extremely useful to to help us determine what the status of this patient is and can help us sort of see uh, and 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 prognosticate what what their outcomes may be or what we should expect. Okay, so in a gross motor function uh, level one, two, and three are usually ambulatories. Level four and five are usually non ambulatories So I'll go for for the ambulatory, which are about sixty-five percent of our um, of our patients. A so level one usually is able to walk and run um, without any aids, meaning no uh, braces or walkers or any type of assistance, and usually they don't have any uh, functional difficulties. That's a level one. A GMFCS level two usually is able to walk without assistance or without aids, but does have some difficulty, especially when walking um, up the stairs or down the stairs or on uneven territory. Um, in, uh, in a level three, they're able to walk independently, but they do need aids usually canes, crutches, or a walker, and they may need a wheelchair for longer distances. And then we go to our uh, non-ambulatory, which are level four and five. Usually they are able to weight bear with transfers. Um, They can use a walker for short distances and for just, you know, therapy and other exercises. And our level fives usually are not able to weight bear even for transfers, and they're completely total care dependent, okay? So we can briefly um, say, I guess level one, they can walk and run. Level two can walk with no aids. Level three walks with aids. Level four, uh, usually wheelchair, back and stand. And level five, wheelchair bound, does not stand and is completely dependent.
1: Hmm, I like that. That's a nice way to kind of break it down. I can see this being a good, uh, you know, quote unquote, pimping question that probably coming our <laughs> way sometime yeah, soon.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. Okay. So. I think we did a great job going over some of the classifications. Um, I guess just real quick, I think you you might have even mentioned some earlier. Is there any any particular assessment tools that you like to go use while you're you know in your practice in office or anything like that?
2: So I like to use the GMFCS level, and and this is part of you know you get this um, with your um, your regular HMP. Right, so you're trying to find out what the level is, what your functional basis is. There's, um, there's a few other um, assessment tools that can help us sort of determine what they are. And it's the, the function motor scale, or FMS. Um, there's, a, there's a number of other, um, of other uh, outcome uh, measures and, and ways to evaluate out there. I'm still working in, in implementing that and how I can, I can do that on a regular basis in an efficient uh, way. For now, I think the GMFCS is is well used and um, it's probably the most uh, the most useful for, for for us right now.
1: Okay, okay, well, awesome. Because um, I, I, I know there's a lot. I remember I was there's doing a lot. little research, and I mean, there there seemed to be a whole lot. And uh, like you said, I think you just kind of had to find out which ones work best for you. So, kind of on this last. Part here, which is going to be a little difficult in uh with this being such a general overview. But what are some of the things you do for management, uh, like non-operative management versus operative management for these kids when they come in? And I know we didn't we didn't call out any specific issues besides gate with the the, pa- the patient in our case. But uh, if you could just kind of expand on this t- topic just for a second, that would be appreciated.
2: Absolutely. And I'll mention sure one thing before I even go to the manager, and it's something that their patient will definitely ask you, and it's their prognosis. And some of the things that we'd like to say, and the first question they're going to ask you all, well, especially if they're not really walking yet, in this in this case, I know the patient was walking, is will my child walk? And we have, you know, we're not I always tell my patient, I'm I'm not God, and I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen in the future. But we do have some science uh, background uh, with this, and and we do like to, you know, people like to hold on to numbers or things or, or what to look for. Yeah. And there's no two patients that are exactly the same. And this is something that I've learned, um, you know, just being on this and and accepting what things that we can and cannot control. But I do like to give them sort of a, a, an idea of maybe what to expect. So. Most likely, if the child is uh, sitting by 24 months, um, there's a high chance that he may uh, he or she may walk at some point. Um, it is l- at least likely if you're not sitting by the age of 48 months. Okay, there are some good predictive factors and some negative predictive factors. So if you have a very low IQ or you have multiple primitive uh, reflexes, that's a negative predictive factor for ambulation. Um, If we've determined that these patients are hemiplegics, uh, usually they are walking by 18 months, and nearly all of the hemiplegics are walking by three years of age, okay? Um, In diplegics, most of them, 80 to 90 percent, will walk, whether it was assistance or not, by the age of four years of age. When you have a, a total body or a level fourth and five, where they're sort of quadriplegics, only ten to fifty percent of them are walking, um, or or have some, or only I would say a quarter of them will be dependent for all ADLs. So that is something that that will come up um, in your conversations with your patients, um, and then we can move on to a little bit more about about the treatment. So I always tell my patients, okay, so. Yes, you're going to need to have a referral and you're going to need to have evaluations by polygenetics, maybe by neurologists, and there will be a whole multidisciplinary team and that's the best way to address these patients. But orthopedically, what are the musculoskeletal implications of this potential diagnosis? Okay, and the, the, the way that I like to tell them is the things that I'm going to be worried about are contractures because we want to make sure your joints are moving. So we have to do contracture prevention where we do this with tons and tons of therapy for stretching, for learning how to coordinate, for making sure they're able to ambulate or be as functional as they can be, okay? And we do this via, again, physical therapy. We do this uh, via bracing. Um, we do this via uh, potentially the uh, Botox um, or other sort of um, this type of uh, toxin applications to help with, with, uh, with that range. And then we can talk about um, other surgical interventions. Okay, the the other thing that we concern ourselves about it with with the hip and with our spine. So we do have hip monitoring protocols, and these have been um, more and more uh, addressed uh, globally, uh, where we are doing uh, hip uh, screenings um, in a sense for for these type of patients. And because they do have a, a great deal of imbalances around our, our joints, our hip joints in particular, um, this sort of, um, we call it a lever-arm dysfunction, uh, this co-contraction of muscles um, in the developing hip tends to kick the hips out of their socket. So we have to keep an eye on them. And, and depending on their level of involvement, we may need to be more aggressive in, in looking and screening them and address them. Um, in an earlier time to prevent the, uh, you know, complete dislocations. Wow. Um, so I told them we gotta we gotta watch the contractures, we gotta watch the hips, and we got to watch our spine. So again, depending on their level of involvement involvement, this will be uh, more severe. Um, and then so you're you know their seating balance, are they seating appropriately? If they have a wheelchair, do we have posts for them? And then we can talk about I mean scoliosis, neuromuscular going scoliosis can be a completely different topic, but it's something that I bring out even on the first visit. Contracture mm. management, hips and spine.
0: I think I think that's great, and I think that's a great um, overview of the management and the different things that we need to kind of focus in on. Um, I really think this was a great overview talk about cerebral palsy um, and hitting all the high points, as well as you know talking about the management and, diff- and the different assessment tools. Are there, are there any like high points or anything else that you would? want, you know, I guess young physicians, whether they're residents or, you know, just starting out uh, attendings in pediatrics to uh, just get from this talk or from this general overview?
2: I can tell you this is a, it's a difficult population, um, but you guys have had will have the necessary training. It can be intimidating at once, but once you know what you're looking for, you need to establish that this is a potential uh, high up on your differentials. You make your diagnosis, you make your prognosis, you have to understand what the patient's needs and the parents' needs and and wishes and expectations are. You can educate the family and educate yourself, and then we can uh, make up treatment plans based on that. And um, I think the importance of recognizing where you're looking at and and if it's something that you're you know you're you're not comfortable with, you you can always uh, you have time. You have your mentors. You have other venues such as what we're doing right now um, that you can educate yourself and, and then be that person to guide them through this, uh, this uh, difficult uh, difficult trip that they have to, to engage on. Um, so I think for me, the, the important part is recognizing what you have and being able to, to guide them uh, properly, understanding the multidisciplinary aspects of it. And uh, this, is a, you know, this is a long-term process. And if you're going into pediatric orthopedics, you do know that one of the benefits of this is, is the ability to, to manage and take care of this patient for a long, for a long time. And um, this is definitely the case for, for, for these patients.
1: Absolutely. I agree. I know even as a first year intern, when I rotated through um, pediatrics and I went to one of the clinics where one of the attendants, that's what he sees is a lot of kids with cerebral palsy. I, I really didn't know where to, start, where to start. And so I think overall, this having to look this stuff up and even just kind of listening to someone who's been doing it for some time helped me out a lot to kind of look for certain things when I when I go back this year to to the Children's Hospital um so but before we go i hope that the listeners learned a lot as well i know i did i hope y'all really enjoy this talk depending on how the feedback is we may expand this talk out even longer because i think we could probably do three or four different talks on uh cerebral palsy and and still have plenty to cover so i hope everyone really enjoys it uh dr pieris i would like to tell you thank you for making time even on a you know it's a storm going on it's it's the holiday (laughs) And you're still making time for us. So I really appreciate
0: that.
2: No, not a problem. It's a pleasure. I, I think this is excellent what you guys are doing. Um this is excellent for, for the future of our of our um, field. Um your interest in this, particularly for this type of population, I think it's important. Uh, we've gotten extremely well at, at saving these little ones and these little angels and and we are left with managing all of this uh, you know uh, sequelae of, of saving these this very fragile little ones. and um, orthopedics is it's a big deal. It's a big part of it. And if you get educated early like you guys are doing now, don't get scared. Um, they're just little ones. They're, they, they want to get and be, and be happy and, and, and be um, healthy as much as anybody else. And um, uh, we we owe it to them as well to to educate ourselves. Don't be scared. Get educated. Get them out of that wheelchair. Just go from head to toe. Your physicians, you got this. And and uh, I think this is a very rewarding field. Um, I think you guys are doing the right steps in in getting educated early. And um, and uh, let's let's get them out there and and uh, and help them out
0: guys we hope you all enjoyed listening to that episode with dr powers she did a excellent job talking about cerebral palsy and all the things to be on the lookout for i had to go back and listen to this again and took some more notes so if this is you all's first time listening to our podcast please hit that subscribe button and please go and leave us a rating or a review in itunes or stitcher or whatever you're listening to us on And don't forget to tell a friend, of course, or two or three or just a whole program, you know, or just blast it out to everybody that, you know, until next time.